Welcome to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. We speak with writers, thinkers, and newsmakers on the controversial issues of human life and human thriving that impact our daily lives. We are exceptional as creatures in the cosmos, as equal members of the human family, and as ethical beings. Humanize explores some of the fundamental questions. How do we thrive? How do we live well and care for what we've inherited? How do we act responsibly with one another and in the wider world? And how do we conserve the good things of this life for the future? We matter. Our actions matter. Let's get into it. I'm Wesley J. Smith, and this is Humanize. No field in society has the naked power, as does bioethics, to impact our individual lives and those of the ones we love. Bioethics focuses on the challenges of mortality, how we care for the ill and vulnerable, and the rights and responsibilities that flow from being a member of the human family. The problem is that there is little agreement about how to define these issues and the policies that best promote human thriving. The mainstream view in bioethics rejects the intrinsic dignity of human life and supports policies in accord with that view. The minority of the field argues that being human is, in and of itself, a crucial objective category to properly understanding our rights and compels us to undertake crucial responsibilities toward each other, society, and the world at large. My guest today, O. Carter Sneed, is one of the world's premier thinkers in the latter camp. He is the William P. and Hazel B. White Director of the Nicola Center for Ethics and Culture at Notre Dame University, where he also serves as a professor of law and concurrent professor of political science. He is also a fellow at the Hastings Center and a member of the Pontifical Academy for Life, the principal bioethics advisory body to Pope Francis. He has written more than 60 journal articles, book chapters, and essays. His scholarly works appear in such publications as the New York University Law Review, the Harvard Law Review Forum, the Vanderbilt Law Review, Constitutional Commentary, and the Yale Journal of Health, Policy, Law, and Ethics. Sneed served as a general counsel to the President's Council on Bioethics. In 2008, he was appointed by the Director General of UNESCO to a four-year term on the International Bioethics Committee. The IBC is the only bioethics commission in the world with a global mandate. Sneed is the author of What It Means to Be Human, The Case for the Body in Public Bioethics, which was named by the Wall Street Journal as one of the 10 best books of 2020. Carter, welcome to Humanize. Great to be with you, Wesley. Thanks for having me on. Oh, you bet. Uh, I always like to kind of humanize, if you will, my guests. What got you interested in the field of bioethics in the first place? It's funny. I uh, It's kind of a happenstance, really. I, I went to college at a strange little liberal arts college called St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland, which is a great book school. Uh, and, and it of course, we study philosophy and literature and and uh, comparative uh, uh, comparative literature as well as, as, as English literature and, and literature of other languages. Um, 
But we also did a very intensive course of study. Everybody has the same major. Everybody has the same course of study at St. John's. There are no electives. But uh, one of the things that we all have to do are three intensive years in history and philosophy of science. And we read all original sources. So we read uh, Newton's Principia. We read Einstein's you know, papers on relativity theory. We read uh, Chet Verikoff and all of this, Aristotle's parts of animals. And so I've always been very interested in the history and philosophy of, of science, especially biology. Um, but then I went to law school and, and studied, and I went to Georgetown where there was a, a pretty significant hub of bioethics, and I took a law, medicine, and ethics class, and, uh, but that didn't give it much thought. Went to, uh, clerked on the, for a wonderful judge on the 10th Circuit, uh, Paul Kelly, Jr., whose chambers are in Santa Fe, New Mexico, um, and then came back to D.C., worked at a law firm, um, and then was an adjunct faculty member at Catholic U, and the dean of the Catholic U Law School, uh, Doug Kamick at the time, uh, had some connections to the Bush administration. President Bush, uh, George W. Bush was president. And as you will recall, you were heavily involved in these conversations about embryonic stem cell research and human cloning and related questions. Uh, and, the, and, the president's, and, and President Bush created the, the, the President's Council on Bioethics, chaired by the wonderful Leon Cass, whom you know, of course, and our friend Bill Hurlbut was a member of that, of that council. And Doug Kamick was asked by folks in the White House who he thought might be an interesting person to serve as the general counsel of that body, to, to work on the, uh, uh, to serve the members and the chairman and, and, the, and the council more generally. And uh, he knew me from my adjunct work at Catholic U, and he knew that I uh, had a history and philosophy of science background. He also knew that I was very much involved in kind of right to life questions and asked me if I'd be willing to be considered. Uh, and I said, sure, I'd be happy to be considered. Um, went to meet Leon Cass, who it turns out taught at St. John's College in the early 1970s before I was born. He and his wonderful wife, Amy, uh, since pa- who has since passed away. And we, in, in our interview, we talked a little bit about bioethics, but then we talked about the Old Testament. We talked about King Lear. We talked about Aristotle's parts of animals. And we just really clicked and hit it off. And he said, I know you're a young person. I was only 29 years old at the time. And I'd never been the general counsel of anything. He said, but if you're willing to learn on the job, I'm willing to, you know, to, to mentor you and take a risk on you. And that was really a, a major inflection point in my life and in my work and in my research. And so from 2002 to 2005, uh, my job was to advise the President's Council members on the uh, legal and public policy questions arising from advances in biomedical science and biotechnology uh, that touch and concern ethics. And I uh, represented the U.S. government at UNESCO and the Council of Europe and, uh, and was a liaison to administrative agencies and uh, to, to, to folks on Capitol Hill on behalf of the administration. So it was a total immersion in bioethics uh, and uh, brought together a lot of previous interests, but took my life and my career in a direction that I hadn't really expected. It's interesting uh, when, when our lives take these sudden right turns, isn't it? Or left turns, depending on the perspective. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It, exactly. For our listeners, define what bioethics is. A lot of people uh, don't think too much about that field, and I think that's a mistake for them. Uh, so define bioethics. Yeah, so bioethics is the discourse, the academic inquiry, the moral disputation over the ethical questions that arise from advances in biomedical science, biotechnology, and the practice of medicine. Uh, Clinical medical ethics deals with the relationships between doctors and patients and the ethical questions that arise in that setting. There's also the area of bioethics that I focus on is less clinical in orientation and more focuses on the law and public policy dimensions of advances in biomedical science and biotechnology, the application of different innovations like gene editing or cloning or uh, or, for that matter, sort of nuances, innovations 
disruptions in the law involving things like assisted suicide or euthanasia, uh, which has a clinical context, but, um, but it goes beyond the, the clinical setting. That's an interesting point about bioethics. It can be very intimate and personal. You know, how do we handle with a particular case in the intensive care unit? Or it can be very broad and general, dealing with perhaps national laws or even international treaties. Uh, that's exactly right. And as, as you've shown in your work time and time again, bioethics, when it enters the world of law and public policy, and I define public bioethics as the governance of science, medicine, and biotechnology in the name of ethical goods, the work of courts and legislatures and administrative agencies and, and such like, who, uh, you know, where the law comes into contact with these spaces, how it really affects everybody. People might think, oh, that's just a small issue involving a handful of people, the questions of assisted suicide or the definition of death. But if you study these issues, it becomes quickly apparent that the weakest and most vulnerable people among us in our communities and our populations are, are dramatically affected by things like the liberalization of assisted suicide laws or, or other kinds of end-of-life decision-making, where a person might say, that just involves me and my doctor or me and my family. Well, once, you, once, you, once the law has something to say about it, you have to think at the population level and ask questions about how does this affect persons with disabilities, the elderly, those suffering from dementia, uh, you know, racial minorities, the poor, and so on. Uh, it has consequences across the board, which is why I was so, I guess you're not a Californian anymore. You used to be a Californian. I escaped. Uh, when, when uh, good for you. When Governor Brown signed the assisted suicide law into law, he made it about his personal, private, intimate decision-making. And that was just such a narrow-minded and and short-sighted uh, appreciation of the issue and, uh, and didn't even register with him how it affected the poor and the weak and the vulnerable, the disabled and the elderly to liberalize the law and to, and to put assisted suicide on the table as a possibility in, 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 the, in the end-of-life context or even not in the end-of-life context as it might be. You're on the Pontifical Academy for Life. Uh, are the principles that you espouse in your book and in your writing only applicable to those who are Catholic uh, and or religious in outlook, or do they apply generally even in a secular society? Yeah, thanks for the question. The book that I wrote uh, does not take a religious perspective or use religion or theology. I am a Catholic, and it is important to me. Uh, but my book was written from the perspective of one who is making an argument in a pluralistic society. And the case that I make is acceptable and understandable and intelligible to people, no matter what their faith tradition is, and or, or if they have no faith tradition at all. Uh, my sort of argument in the book and uh, is that the richest way to understand these questions of bioethics, and especially public bioethics, is through the lens of what I describe as anthropology, namely asking what vision of the person and human flourishing is anchoring and underwriting the law at issue. And that's something that we all have to grapple with and, and, to, and to understand and to, and to criticize or support, no matter what our views on, on religion might be. Yeah, this isn't just transactional either. It, it be, uh, first principles lead to different outcomes depending on what which first principles you choose. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And some principles are vacuous, as we've seen uh, with the um, the advent of certain approaches to bioethics, which which simply reduce all questions to questions of autonomy, um, and uh, or or broader terms like beneficence or justice, which are important concepts, but uh, without much. Uh, fleshing out uh, those those and and tend to be sort of empty vessels that we can fill with whatever uh, whatever our own yeah. personal preferences might be. Yeah, they're they're kind of free free floaters. What I call free floaters. That is, 
uh, I figure out the outcome I want. And then if, if beneficence works and I'll say, well, that's, this is beneficence, but if autonomy works and I'll say, well, this is autonomy. And it just allows us basically to subjectively uh, promote the issues we want as if we're having an objective analysis. Yeah. It creates the illusion of objectivity. Uh, they're simple terms to use, which is why they're so broadly adopted in public policy and in clinical settings around the world. I've been, as you have too, been around the world. And uh, I was in Baku, Azerbaijan. I've been in Estergum, Hungary. And no matter where you go, you always hear the principles, the Georgetown principles that we have to use and apply uh, autonomy, beneficence, or non-maleficence and, uh, and justice as if they were self-defining categories. Justice is the most contested concept in all of political theory, and we're just supposed to apply it as a prima facie concept. You write about the anthropology of individualism. Uh, the United States is an individualistic society, but you seem to consider that to be a problem. Why is that? Well, I consider the anthropology of individualism, and in particular expressive individualism, which I'm happy to ex explain a little further to your audience, um, as being a, a, an capturing something true about what it means to be a human being, something important, but not the whole truth. And um, expressive individualism is the idea that people are best understood through the lens of individualism, namely that the individual person is the, is the fundamental unit of reality, and not just the person as such, but defining the person as coextensive with his or her will. A person is, you and I are defined by our will, by our cognitive capacities to formulate and pursue desires. That's the real you and me. Everything else about us, our bodies, our communities, our relationships, our, our histories, our traditions, all of that's accidental and in fact instrumental to pursuing the projects of our will. And even our humanity for some bioethicists, because some believe that uh, personhood, as, as what you're describing here, should be extended beyond human beings, sometimes to animals such as Peter Singer, uh, or even to uh, uh, AI uh, computer systems. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's expressive individualism tends to be, tends to reject the notion that there's any wisdom in the external realities of the outside world, that you can't know something by virtue of its structure and function. I can't know who I am by considering and, and reflecting on what I am as an organism. Everything is a blank slate for me to write on pursuant to the, the objects of my will. And if I want to make a river, a forest, a person and deny that a newborn baby is a person, I can do that because there's nothing intrinsic to any of those things. They're just simply things that are the objects of my will and judgment. Let's talk a little bit more about this idea of being a person in bioethics. Uh, why is who in the mainstream view, not what you think, who qualifies as a quote person, close quote, and why is it important to be a person? So personhood theory is um, is, an, is an important piece of, of bioethics. The question of how to define who is a member of the moral and legal community. And we call those members persons, right? And the question is, well, how do you recognize a person? Now, folks like you and I would say, well, any, any member of the human species is a person. There's no difference between a human being and a person. There's no pre-personal human beings. There are no post-personal human beings. But the mainstream bioethical view, because, and this relates to what I was saying a moment ago about expressive individualism, identifies the person and the self with cognition and will. And and so different philosophers have come up with different ways to try to divide the world up of human beings between persons and non-persons. And it almost always depends on some kind of cognitive criteria. Do you have the capacity to formulate uh, and pursue future directed plans? Michael Tooley, for example, famous 
philosopher who focuses on abortion says, in order to be a person, in order to have human rights, you have to be capable of the desire uh, for, for, for human rights, you have to the desire for certain kinds of interests. Because if you can't formulate and appreciate those desires, then you're not a person. You are a human being. You're a member of the human species, but you're not a moral being in the sense that we owe you an obligation of forbearance or even care and concern. And you're certainly not going to stand on an equal footing in the law uh, in terms of your interests and rights as, as with other people who we all agree are persons. This comes up, obviously, a lot in the context of abortion. Um, Thule, as I said a moment ago, writes in the area of abortion. And the big question is, well, when does life begin? Well, that's an easy question, it turns out. When human life begins, as embryology teaches us, at the fusion of egg and sperm, and a unique uh, self-directing organism comes into being. What they mean when they say, when does life begin, is when does moral status that I'm that I'm that that I have to recognize begins. And so then, they're in the business, as I say, of drawing the world up into categories of who counts and who doesn't count. And if you, and as you say, what's important about being a person? Well, if you're a person, you have human rights. You are protected by the law. Uh, you, uh, other people have to respect you. They can't exploit you. They can't kill you with impunity. Um, but if you're a non-person, you live at the sufferance of, of other people. You could be used and destroyed for other people's purposes. You can be, you can be food. You can be, you, know, you can be exploited and treated in all sorts of ways that are extractive and non-respectful of of your of your moral interests. So it matters a lot if you're a person or if you're not a person. And much of the work of mainstream bioethics has been to try to figure out ways to tell us that members of the human family, the unborn, the elderly, people suffering from dementia are not persons and therefore our the freedom of persons is enhanced and we don't have to take into account the interest of those non-persons when we want to pursue our dreams when we want to pursue our vision of what the good is so basically personhood theory tells us who we can kick out of the lifeboat personhood theory is exactly personhood theory is about sh- about shrinking this the, the sphere of the moral and legal community it's about ruling people out uh, or kicking them out of the lifeboat as you say who do, it's it's concerned with who doesn't count, not who does count. Although there's a paradox, and it's very strange that we're seeing is while at the same time there's uh, for a long time been efforts underway to exclude from the circle of personhood the unborn, those suffering from dementia, those who are radically dependent upon others, while at the same time enhancing the boundaries of the moral and legal community to include things like great apes or whales or rivers or forests. Yeah, there's a certain irony there. This idea of bioethics where being human is not what gives one value, but having whatever attributes the people in power decide matter. Does that lead to what uh, Pope uh, uh, John Paul called the culture of death? Well, it's cer- <laughs> it certainly can enhance uh, and move us in that in the direction of culture of death. And I think it has in the area the areas that he was talking about in, in Evangelium Vitae, where he used that expression, uh, the areas of abortion <clears throat> and euthanasia. Um, it, it, of course it is. And, and the thing that people don't appreciate, there are a lot of people who think of themselves as liberals or progressives uh, or people who care about the little guy, people who care about the poor and the downtrodden, but nevertheless don't seem to appreciate that mainstream bioethics, which is associated in, in, a, in sort of rough political parlance with the, the left or the progressive side of the spectrum, um, they all of a sudden become uh, comfortable with this radical discrimination and empowering the strong at the at the at the uh, at the at the, at the uh, in consequence of diminishing the weak. I mean, it, the the more you, I mean, personhood theory is a kind of tool for the strong to suppress the weak. 
I think that's an excellent way to put it. That's absolutely right. And so you and I, I think, have similar sort of sympathies. I mean, you you worked with the wonderful Ralph Nader trying to take care of people who needed representation, people who couldn't take care of themselves. And I think you, like me, have a special kind of um, trigger for, for bullying and for the strong moving in and doing things, uh, taking advantage of exploiting the weak. And there's no greater exploitation of the weak than to simply say, I, as the strong, can simply not just exploit you, but write you out of the circle of humanity by virtue of the fact that you don't meet the standards that I've set in place that you have to satisfy to count in my system of personhood. Right. Nothing could be more anathema. Uh, nothing could be more inegalitarian uh, with lethal and devastating consequences, sometimes on an industrial scale than that. So you would hope that there would be kind of common cause with folks who care about the weak and the, and, and the downtrodden uh, uh, when that, when that, uh, that, that, that reality is brought to light. And it's interesting that some of the sharpest pushback against uh, those views, which are, which, as you said, tend to be on the liberal side of the political spectrum, come from the disability rights activists who, generally speaking, and we can only speak generally, tend to be liberal politically. They're not pro-life, generally speaking, on abortion. But on a lot of these issues, on personhood, on assisted suicide, on pulling feeding tubes from cognitively disabled people like Terry Schiavo, they see themselves as the targets. They sure do. They see the, they see the dangers and the risks of the kind of nihilistic theories of personhood that only, only recognize the value in people who are capable of high level of cogni- cognition or, or deemed useful, people who are thought of as burdensome, people who are thought of as less than human because of their cognitive incapacities, they see in a very dramatic way where that leads. And it m- motivates them in the political sphere to, to, to argue against, as you say, assisted suicide, euthanasia, and so on. And where it has led in the past, like eugenics. Exactly right. I mean, at the very heart of it, if you look at, if you look at the history of of assisted suicide and euthanasia in, in this country, it began, the enthusiasm for it began in the progressive era in, in the United States with very eminent figures like John Dewey and Dick Lamb, former governor of Colorado and others who who really saw social hygiene as a good to be pursued by eliminating the unfit. I mean, Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, was, a, was, an, was an avid eugenicist who literally spoke uh, before the women's auxiliary of the Ku Klux Klan yes. in 1928 in Silver Lake, New Jersey. That's I'm not. That's that's a matter of historical fact. Now one could say, well, that doesn't mean she's a racist, but uh, I, I don't know if it does or doesn't mean that. But it certainly thinks that uh, it implies that she thought she would find a receptive audience uh, in that group to her her views on eugenics and eliminating the weak and the human weeds, as she described them. And and a lot of uh, eugenics was racist. Of course, not all of it. Uh, some of it had to do with moral issues, some of it drunkenness, uh, 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 intelligence, and this kind of thing. I always notice that uh, the eugenicists among us, whether it's the old kind or the new kind, very rarely speak about love. Right. And love, I think, is an absolutely essential counterpoint to all of this. The notion of sort of unconditional welcoming and hospitality, solidarity, Virtues and goods that one, again, would associate with the the political discourse of of the left, or at least the old-fashioned left. Um, And I'm hopeful that, you know, by making appeals to those concepts, we can... We can, you know, win over some 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 uh, some support in those in those quarters. I mean, maybe maybe I'm being naive, but I hope that's possible. You advocate what you call an anthropology of embodiment, kind of as a contrast to the anthropology anthropology of individualism. You write um, that according to this view, quote, there are no pre or post personal beings. 
Being human is the only criterion for membership in the community of persons. You also write, the anthropology of embodiment regards frailty, weakness, dependence, vulnerability, and even disability as part and parcel of the human condition. As we've discussed, that's kind of pushing against the tide. You know, people have a have a real phobia now about becoming a burden. It's almost a, um, a you know a dependent phobia. <laughs> and and how do how do we come across or how do we communicate this idea outside of say a specifically religious context about this idea of 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 embracing those concepts as part of the human condition, being disabled, needing care, this kind of thing. Yeah. So, so as you say, I, what I argue for, so the, the reason that expressive individualism fails as an anthropology, because it can give no account of our lives as embodied beings. Every single human being we have ever met, it, the locus of their humanity is their, is their body. We are a dynamic, integrated, psychophysical unity of mind and body. That's what human beings are. We are not disembodied wills or minds, nor are we simply bodies. We are a, we're a, we're a dynamic, integrated combination of, of the two. And an anthropology that fails to give an account of our embodiment and what comes with it, because we are fragile bodies in time, that means we're vulnerable, which means we're reciprocally dependent upon one another, which means we're subject to natural limits. It situates us in a kind of relationship to one another such that what we need to flourish is not simply the freedom of the unencumbered will, which is what expressive individualism would counsel, but instead what we need are what Alistair McIntyre has called networks of uncalculated giving and graceful receiving. Every person who can hear our voices right now came into the world as a baby before that, as an unborn child, profoundly dependent for his or her very survival upon the beneficence of another person who was willing to make the good uh, of, of, of make our good their good without seeking anything in return. That's, that's what human beings need to survive and to flourish. And if you reflect on your life, if you reflect on the arc of your life, beginning with in total dependency, rising, if all goes well, to a condition of you know, autonomy, but then immediately pivoting downward back in the direction of total dependency once again, that's the arc of human life. It is a fiction to suggest that what a person is, is a, an autonomous being who bestrides the planet, the environment, bending the world around him to his will. That's, 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 not, that's, that's what the devil says in Paradise Lost, in Milton's Paradise Lost. That's, that's non-servium. That's, that's a snapshot of the most privileged and powerful individual in our community. That's not the lives of most people. In fact, our lives are, because of our embodiment, we, have, we depend on these networks, put it in a more succinct way, human beings by virtue of their embodiment are made for love and friendship. We not only depend on these networks for our survival, but we learn from participating in these networks what it means to be someone who can make the good of another our own good. I argue in the book that we're most human when we're taking care of each other and everyone needs to be taken care of. Uh, has take, been taken care of, that should engender a sense of gratitude, but you should also cultivate our, one should cultivate his or her moral imagination to see where we're headed, which is a state of total dependence. Once again, McIntyre has a nice phrase. He says, every person exists on a scale of disability. So the virtues that we need to survive are not the virtues of, of will, but the virtues of caring and solidarity. You know, I sometimes have read uh, stories of uh, news stories of uh, finding Neanderthal graves or ancient human graves. And sometimes you'll actually find a disabled child there who was clearly cared for 
uh, in prehistory, which shows that some of the prehistorical humans, it seems to me, were more human than some of our greatest thinkers in bioethics. There's a phrase that uh, Protestant theologian William May used. Uh, he was a member of the President's Council on Bioethics, talked about openness to the unbidden. Part of being a human being and realizing that we're all connected to each other in these relationships of giving and receiving, which should engender gratitude for those who took care of you and anticipatory gratitude for those who will take care of you and us as we, as we move towards dependence once again, that it should that we should understand that everything we have in some ways is a gift and so we should we should be humble uh and we should be tolerant of imperfection and we should be open to the unbidden none of which are on display in modern bioethics which is all about rational mastery control and ordering using technology selecting the child you want using pre-implantation genetic diagnosis eliminating those whose lives you deem unworthy of life, which, by the way, has a pretty ugly pedigree as an expression, Labens und Vertus Labens, that's from Hawk and Binding, who were the sort of intellectual godfathers of the, uh, of the Nazi eugenic uh, movement. So openness to the unbidden, tolerance of imperfection, these are the fruits of gratitude that is engendered by reflecting upon our relationships of giving and receiving to one another. We're talking with O. Carter Sneed, the author of What It Means to Be Human, The Case for the Body in Public Bioethics. You know, as I was reading your book, um, you and I are pretty much one accord in these issues. Um, What you call the embodiment, uh, anthropology of embodiment, I tend to call human exceptionalism. That is, we have unique rights and come sol- that come solely from being human. And as moral beings, because we are human, we have duties, including to uh, each other, our posterity, the natural world, and so forth. And it struck me that a lot of us have the same ideas, but we express them in different ways. Since we tend to be a minority view in bioethics, perhaps it's time we got together and worked out a common lexicon, because that's really what's required to have effective advocacy. What do you think about that? I think that's a great idea. Um, it's funny, today I, I teach, uh, this semester I'm teaching undergrads. I'm a law professor, but I'm teaching undergrads. This semester I'm teaching a, a undergrad course called uh, Law, Bioethics, and the Human Person. And today we read uh, Steven Pinker's On the Stupidity of Dignity, Ruth Macklin, Dignity is a Useless Concept. And then last week we read Leon Cass's In Defense of Human Dignity. And this is a perfect example of what you're describing. I mean, it would be valuable for us to try to sit down and flesh out the entailments of concepts like human dignity, human exceptionalism, and the anthropology of embodiment to show uh, what we mean and to, and, to, and to bring clarity to the, to the debates and the conversations. And, to, and for those who are not in the habit of thinking about these things or maybe are on the fence to kind of get a sharper understanding of what we're saying in contrast to what uh, the sort of mainstream uh, secular bioethics is saying. Yeah, because I'm pretty convinced that the average person, the, the persons, the people upon whom these policies will be deployed, really would not support a lot of this more utilitarian-ish bioethical view, which is kind of like uh, we're just trees standing next to each other, we're not a forest. Um, but they, they're not engaged, they're not the, the discussion does not reach the popular level and, and tends to stay in the high academy uh, and uh, uh, among the elites. And then these, these policies are brought down from that place into law, into courtrooms, because expert witnesses may testify in a case of first impression and so forth. So it strikes me that 
this battle over over what will be the fundamental principles of society is winnable, but it's not winnable among the elite at this time, but it is winnable among the average person upon whom these policies will apply. But we have to engage them. I couldn't agree more with you. And you see this, especially, I mean, I, earlier in the semester, I had the students read uh, Michael Tooley's work and Marianne Warren's work called Abortion and Infanticide. And it gets back to what we were talking about a few moments ago, the personhood theory, sketching out a very restrictive definition of what a person is, and then excluding from the circle of humanity and protection everybody who doesn't meet that criteria. And that includes not just unborn children, which was their focus because they're talking about abortion, but also, um, and not just the elderly, but, but newborns, right? The kind of cognitive standards for personhood that they were offering not only didn't apply to unborn children, they equally didn't apply to newborn children. And so Michael Tooley bites the bullet and says, that's why infanticide should be legal and practiced in those circumstances where you need it. Peter Singer, of course, has said the same thing. Marianne Warren was a little faint, more faint hearted about it. She was saying, well, I'm not really sure about infanticide uh, that we should pursue it. There may be utilitarian reasons why we shouldn't kill newborns. Maybe they bring joy to other people who are persons. But she made it clear that uh, infanticide is not murder. She made a very important, you know, uh, amplification of that proposition at the end of her work. And this proves exactly what you're talking about. More recently, there was a piece by Jublini and Minerva and, you know, about infanticide. And the, your average person on the street may feel queasy about abortion. They may feel conflicted about abortion, but they sure don't feel conflicted about infanticide. And if you can illustrate to them that personhood theory, which is what, un, which drives a lot of the abortion discourse, a lot of discourse involving end of life matters, leads you in that direction. The natural entailments of these arguments take you in a direction uh, where you're embracing something that mo most people think is abhorrent, which should be prima facie evidence that the reasoning that got you to that point is, is, is mistaken and problematic. Yeah. Most, I think most people think it's a self-evident truth that, that infanticide is abhorrent. But uh, to be an intellectual is to turn oneself inside out, if necessary, to, a, to attain a certain outcome. And I think that happens quite a bit. I want to get into a little bit of practical issues, but uh, you, had, you made a statement about uh, something that has to do with the anthropology of embodiment, and you write about it in your book. It's called Grateful Receiving. What do you mean by that? So in order to survive, and then I argue to flourish, to learn to become the thing that we're all meant to be and to practice the virtues that... that, that contribute and shore up these networks of giving and receiving. Human beings need these networks, right? For you and I to survive, to be having this conversation, to flourish, to learn how to take care of ourselves and others, we had to be embedded in these networks of uncalculated giving, which include virtues like just generosity, hospitality, misericordia, which is a Latin word, which means to take on the suffering of another as your own. Um, but not just giving, right? It's not just to, for these networks to work. You don't have, it's not merely uh, it's not merely the responsibility of those who are constructing the networks. It's also the responsibility of those who are the beneficiaries of these networks to reflect upon what's happening and then to experience and to attend to the gratitude that we should all feel when you consider the only reason we're here right now speaking to each other is because someone else in our infancy, maybe in times in our lives when we became dependent upon others for our very survival, took and put our needs first, put our needs in front of their own without seeking some kind of transactional benefit from that. And so the other half of that is, are the virtues of graceful receiving and the virtues of graceful receiving, which also uh, require, uh, are required to shore up and to strengthen and, and make sustainable these networks of uncalculated giving and graceful receiving are princ principally the virtue of gratitude, 
which leads to humility, which leads to, again, as I said, openness to the unbidden and, um, and, 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 and also um, tolerance of imperfection and leads us away from an extractive attitude towards the world around us, including the environment, leads us away, toward, away from the idea that, that, uh, that we can rationally order and master everything according to our will using technology, which, which again, should lead us to recognize in our common shared humanity the good of solidarity. That's another virtue that is essential, a virtue of graceful receiving that, that sustains these networks of giving and receiving that are necessary for our survival and flourishing, as well as truthfulness, as well as respecting intrinsic equal dignity of everyone. And finally, I think the way to understand all these virtues of both giving and receiving is through the lens of authentic friendship, which as Aristotle said, the best form, the highest form of friendship is when one makes the good of another his own good when it's done right, the idea of caregiving and helping those who are in need and receiving that care graciously is like Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. It becomes a unity of, of uh, joint purpose. Absolutely. No, that's a very, a very beautiful way to say it in a great analogy. I'm reminded of, of her wonderful comment when someone asked her if she was as good a dancer as Fred Astaire. She said, imagine doing every, everything he does backwards wearing high heels. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> What do you consider to be the most important bioethical issues that we face right now? That's a really great question. I mean, there's so many to choose from, um, <laughs> Yes, <laughs> sadly. Uh, I mean, you could measure importance in terms of the moral depravity <laughs> or monstrosity on the one hand, or you could look at just sort of like what is the scope of harms that could be, could be visited upon the planet as a result. I mean, if you think about certain kinds of biosecurity issues involving gene editing and gene drives, eliminating species, eliminating, you know, the possibility of continents supporting food crops, that's pretty scary. Um, but, uh, but I will say that, I mean, I, I think I, for my own work, I think that we should probably, before we thought, think about like the most elaborate uh, cutting edge questions, we should not move on from the original questions, the original questions, and this, and, and one of the central questions that, that concerns me and my work, is the is simply the question of abortion. I think that I mean there are you know a million abortions in the United States every year, maybe a little bit less. Uh, it's hard to do accurate record keeping on that. Uh, abortion has transformed our our, our 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 the practice of medicine. It's transformed, and one could argue corrupted the the concept of parenthood. It's it's, uh, it's, it's bent the law, it's destroyed our politics. And I think we're on the cusp of the Supreme Court uh, returning the question of abortion to the political sphere to be resolved as our friends and neighbors around the world do through the political process where we can actually govern ourselves on these questions instead of having an extreme, uh, unworkable, anti-democratic solution imposed on us under a, species, a specious uh, interpretation of the Constitution. I realize that you know abortion is sometimes separated from questions of bioethics, but I think the notion of birth and parenthood and and the meaning of of, of conception and 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 uh, and development and uh, the question of when moral status can be accorded to a member of the human species, I think I, I think we haven't solved that one yet, uh, and I think we need to uh, continue to focus on that, and I and I hope and expect that we're going to have an opportunity to focus on it. Uh, at, together as a poly, when we when we govern ourselves, if the court returns to us our, our rightful authority to to do that. The interesting thing about abortion, as I look at it, and I I tend not to delve too deeply into that issue because so many other people engage it. 
But it's almost like the issue of slavery in the 19th century. Eventually, every important public question seems to get back to abortion, just the way every important public question then got back to slavery. No, that's exactly right. Why do you think that is? Well, so, I mean, as a historical matter, and in in chapter two of my book, I sort of trace the history of American public, public bioethics, beginning in the late 60s with the publication of Henry Beecher's uh, seminal work, Ethics and Research, in which he uncovered 22 examples of uh, some of the most elite institutions in the world conducting research involving human subjects that were engaging in just horrific exploitation of the weakest and most vulnerable. For example, injecting cognitively disabled children with hepatitis uh, at Willowbrook School uh, for cognitively disabled children. Uh, Or the Tuskegee Uh, experiments uh, where the U.S. Public Health Service systematically deceived poor African-American sharecroppers for decades and decades. Uh, And it has been reported not only deceived them about what they were doing, the natural history study watching the natural progression of syphilis in this community in Macon County, Georgia, where syphilis, uh, some of the highest rates of syphilis, didn't tell them that that they knew anything about the disease. They said, we're testing you for bad blood. And then when antibiotics became standard of care in the mid-40s. They they didn't provide them with that information. And in fact, some have suggested that they colluded with local health authorities to prevent those men and women from getting health care because it would have compromised the, the results. And that's precisely because they rejected the anthropology of embodiment. That is, they didn't see African Americans as having the same value as uh, ma- white Americans. That's ex- that's exactly right. And then and, and, and many, many people who study bioethics have heard of you know, Beecher and have heard of Tuskegee. Most people haven't heard of uh, the sort of third event was contemporaneous with that involving researchers traveling to Scandinavia where women would get abortions through a process called hysterotomy, which was basically delivery by C-section of a pretty well-developed unborn child and just letting the child expire. These American researchers would go to Scandinavia and do horrific experiments on these newly aborted, imminently dying newborns. These are not these are not in utero human organs. They're outside of the body, sometimes connected to their mothers with an umbilical cord, and would test instruments on them, would, would inject them with uh, radio-labeled microspheres. They would, do, they would extend their, their life briefly for the sake of the experiment. And, and so these are all examples of exploitation, all examples um, of, of, uh, of but, but, they, but in some ways, the, why is the question of abortion so central? Because on, as a matter of law, Roe v. Wade emerged in, in you know, 1973, as we all know, contemporaneous with the growth of public bioethics. And as you say, everything, just like slavery, everything relates back to abortion. You can even see it in the amicus briefs in the Glucksburg and Quill Supreme Court cases, which are about whether or not there's a, a constitutional right to assisted suicide. There's a very famous amicus brief filed by uh, prominent moral philosophers. It was called the Philosopher's Brief. It was published in the New York Review of Books. It was Ronald Dworkin and John Rawls and Jews Jarvis Thompson and Nozick and and, and others uh, writing uh, writing this uh, uh, writing this brief saying Planned Parenthood versus Casey in the passage that Anthony Kennedy is 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 is, is thought to be responsible for that. You know, everything that is existentially important to you, all these important existential choices, the mystery of life, the meaning of life, that you you have the, the constitutional liberty interest to make those decisions, but not just make those decisions, self-defining decisions, and to, and to make choices about that, but to configure your life accordingly. Well, these philosophers said that right there is broad enough to encompass a right to assisted suicide. It matters to people how they die. It's existentially important. It defines them. It's the last chapter in the story that you're writing about yourself. So 
you know, and we see the same context in, in embryo research. People use the personhood theory developed in the abortion context, sometimes referring specifically to Roe v. Wade and, and the philosophers who promoted abortion in the early 1970s as settling the question of what the moral status of the embryo in a dish or in a freezer is. So all of these questions of personhood and, and freedom and autonomy, I think, are, are frequently related back to the abortion issue and the shoddy work and tendentious work of the United States Supreme Court and its jurisprudence in this space. Yeah, and now states, uh, um, with the potential that uh, Roe v. Wade will be overturned, some states are uh, preemptively passing laws that would ban abortion. Other states are passing laws that would allow it through the ninth month. Yep, like Colorado uh, just and did. Yeah, and uh, Colorado, right. And Vermont, actually, and I think maybe another statement, I know Vermont uh, included in their law a statement that said no embryo or fetus has any rights. That's exactly right. Now, that goes beyond the question of abortion, which generally sounds in the idea of a woman's control of her body. If no unborn human being, which is what an embryo and a, a fetus uh, scientifically, they are human beings, they're nascent human beings. If they have no rights, that means they can be used instrumentally in the very ways that you discussed were happening in Sweden with live fetal experiments. Now, people say, well, no, they would never do that. Well, they already have. They have, and they and, and there's nothing, I and mean, it's it's a lot more valuable to, to do experimentation on a living, a living newly delivered uh, you know, neonate or newborn uh, than it is to to use, you know, the the, the remains of a deceased fetus, um, and and not only that, but now I mean, you can think about all the different sort of boundary crossing practices that we wrote about in the President's Council on Bioethics reports involving gestating human beings in the uteruses of a, of, of pigs or or in ectogenic chambers outside the body. And if if a fetus or a embryo is, has no rights and is not deemed to be of have any independent significance or, or, or substantive protections, then everything is on the table. Um, and the language that you quoted from Vermont was repeated in the Illinois law that they passed, which is extraordinarily uh, sweeping in the New York law and in the Colorado law. So this is so as we all know, what happens when when one state passes a law? We've seen this in the assisted suicide context with Oregon passing the law. People just cut and paste, you know, what was from those from those laws in previous states. And that's precise. And that that extraordinary statement about personhood, uh, which is derived from the abortion context, but it certainly goes well beyond it, is one example of how abortion has transformed our bioethics discourse and our laws beyond the scope of that particular question. As I say, the as you say, rather, as the abortion question is distinct uh, in that it also involves the question of bodily dependence and the unique burdens on a woman who is pregnant and doesn't want to be pregnant. And that makes it different and distinct and in some ways more complex than the issues of embryo research or cloning or, or, or these other contexts. I was deeply engaged in the embryonic stem cell debate uh, defending President Bush's really modest uh, uh, federal funding restrictions. And, and it was a conflagration of media, you know, huge stories, headlines, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, since then, um, embryonic stem cell research has not gone where the, the quote, scientists, close quote, said it would. But we have had actually more pretentious developments, things like CRISPR, which allows gene editing, things such as uh, three-parent embryos, things um, that are uh, have actually have the capability of changing human uh, the human genome down the generations. And yet there's almost crickets 
in the mainstream media and certainly in public discourse? Why do you think that is? It's a really interesting question. I mean, you were a, a, a very active and correctly during the Trump administration calling for the creation of a council on bioethics. Um, one would have expected at the at the end of the Obama administration, an administration that was very much committed to robustly supporting biomedical research involving embryos and so forth without real meaningful restrictions beyond those that are written into the law already in the Dickey-Wicker Amendment and so on. Um, but... Uh, but the Trump administration didn't do very much on this on this score, I have to say. Zippity uh, doodah. They did nothing, um, yeah. and uh, they didn't alter President Obama's embryonic stem cell funding policy at all. Uh, they didn't take proactive steps to grapple with questions of gene editing. They didn't grapple with questions of synthetic embryos. They didn't grapple with questions of using, uh, you know, cr- the creation of gametes, egg and sperm, using you know using stem cells to create egg and sperm, which could potentially be used to to conceive a new human organism. Um, and they didn't grapple with the question of, uh, what are, you know, organoids, the idea of being able to use gene editing and other kinds of interventions to create sort of modular organs, including brains, cerebral organoids that, that have some structure and function. Uh, and, and that's like, what do you do with that? I mean, you have a, a, a disembodied brain that is in some ways structurally and functionally active. What is the status of that thing? I mean, like, how, how do we how do we start to think about that? And we and we, and and the Trump administration evinced pretty pretty much zero interest in that in those kinds of questions, and that that uh, was a missed opportunity. Um, it's a good question. I mean, all people talked about during the Bush administration was embryonic stem cell funding, and then March of two thousand nine, President Obama reversed the policy, offered federal funding for the first time without meaningful limitation on embryonic stem cell research. Uh, that is on 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 uh, yeah, whatever howsoever the lines might be derived, subject to some long-standing restrictions in the NIH guidelines, um, and uh, you know people aren't really ta- people aren't talking about it anymore. It's very very strange. I don't yeah. I don't quite understand it. I think I think that once it lost its political valence, and it seemed like um, the political parties were no longer the kind of vessels of disputation on this. I think people sort of moved on. They also probably moved on because embryonic stem cell research didn't really bear the promise that we were told that it would in the same way that fetal tissue research never bore the promise that we were told that it would in the early 1990s. Uh, remember John Edwards saying that Chris, people like Christopher Reeve will get out of their wheelchair and walk yeah. uh, if, 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 if John Kerry is elected president and funds embryonic stem cell research. Or, you know, there was a creepier one where, where I think Ted Kennedy said there will be no more nursing homes will be empty. That's a actually they didn't explain why exactly that was going to be. Maybe That's it's because they're going to get lethal injections. <laughs> a, a sinister suggestion. <laughs> um, but uh, but I think I think that uh, maybe uh, the, the advocates I mean, in California, they basically poured more money into embryonic stem cell research and cloning research uh, than that the NIH would even have the capacity to do with Proposition 71. They were giving away, you know, lab space uh, in San Francisco, which is, you know, extraordinarily expensive. They're giving it away and nothing ever came of it. We don't have any cures from embryonic stem cell research. We have a couple clinical trials and the advent of uh, induced pluripotent state cells where you can de-differentiate a, an adult skin cell into a state of pluripotency overtook uh, embryonic stem cell research as as the focus of researchers interests so I think it's I think the I think that it was not part of the culture of life agenda of the Trump administration plus I think the research hasn't borne the fruits that we were promised that it would maybe is why we're not talking about it I also think that scientists decided they didn't want to be in the Klieg lights and so rather than as they did during that, uh, 
debate because they felt they were being restricted. They like being in the shadows, and there are no meaningful regulations. There's voluntary guidelines, which are worth the paper they're written on, uh, to the point that they keep expanding and giving themselves authority to do more and more. For example, the 14-day rule. Why don't you describe what that is and what happened? So that's a really great question. So the, the 14-day rule was derived uh, or was articulated or invented in the 1980s uh, by a commission in the United Kingdom, the Warnock Commission, which was put together to, um, to come up with guidelines to explore the question of, of what the UK's policy should be regarding assisted reproduction and embryo research. Of course, IVF was invented. Well, people dispute this, but the two of the most prominent practitioners and inventors of IVF were Steptoe and Edwards, and they were British uh, researchers. And the first baby born from IVF was Louise Brown in the UK in, in uh, I think it was 1979. So there was this long kind of bioethics commission dog and pony show they took all over the UK. They did town hall meetings. And they came up with this idea that embryos, if that it was okay to research on human embryos, but you had to stop your research. You shouldn't go beyond 14 days of development uh, for a couple of reasons. One of which is because at 14 days, what's called the primitive streak forms. It's a sort of progenitor of the of the of the central nervous system. Uh, it, it it sort of points towards the the capacities that that personhood theorists think are important, like cognition or or you know neurological functioning. But also, it's the point after which it is thought twinning is no longer possible you wouldn't have uh, the capacity to disrupt the organism into more than into it break off a piece of the organism have it resolve itself into a new a new organism the piece becomes a whole again that's how monozygotic twinning happens i have identical twin sons so they were monozygotic twins um in any event, and so, but later on, Baroness Warnock said, you know, we just kind of made that up. We just, we sort of, we, we came up with 14 days because we wanted people not to freak out and we wanted to point to some limit so that we didn't seem extreme or monstrous. And, and the truth is it wasn't much of a limit because you can't, there's nobody who could really cultivate them beyond 14 days anyway. It wasn't actually a meaningful. Right. They were, they were saying we won't do what we can't do. Exactly. And now, nowadays, when there's interest in and capacity to cultivate the human organism beyond that stage, here comes the International Society for Stem Cell Research, which is an advocacy organization made up of stem cell researchers, which has a lot of prominence in the international stage. And they have been very aggressive and they promoted some guidelines like a year ago, suggesting that it's time to move the 14 day line. And then sort of right on cue, you had media personalities coming forward and saying, oh, we really do need for, for the sake of science, for the sake of humanity to push past this limit. It's not really, you know, we'll be responsible. We won't go that much beyond it, mm. but, uh, but, but we should go beyond it when we, when we need to. Um, and just to give you a little sense of the International Society for Stem Cell Research, years ago, they were actually admonished by the journal Nature, which is pretty aggressive in promoting biotechnology and freedom. But the ISSCR went even too far for their editors who, when the ISSCR said we should stop using the word embryo altogether because it's morally inflammatory. And we should find some other more obscure expression to refer to the, to the, to the human organism at that stage of development. And uh, in an editorial called Playing the Name Game, Nature said that's, that's just crazy. I mean, you can't, you can't just change the word and eliminate the moral uh, conflict or, or to, to hide the moral conflict using nomenclature like that. And the most, by the way, the most egregious example, you'll remember this, that I've ever seen in, 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 in the legal context was in the definition of the, the cloned organism after, you know, in, in, the, in the laws that were meant to liberalize, to promote 
cloning to, pr to promote biomedical research, to clone embryos that you could use and destroy in stem cell research, and to forbid cloning to produce a, a live-born child. And the and it's all it's the same embryo that you're cloning, right? It's the same organism that you're that you're creating through this process of somatic cell nuclear transfer. But what Diane Feinstein and and uh, Arlen Specter and others described as the product of cloning was quote an unfertilized blastocyst, which is the most you'll ne you will not find that term in any science textbook, em embryology textbook. It's totally made up by congressional staff to try to confuse the layperson back to your original point. When laypeople understand these things, they react with common sense and say, well, should we really be doing that? Should we really be crossing that line? Uh, but, but, uh, and so unfertilized blastocyst is an example of hiding behind nomenclature. Uh, the and sort of monstrosity is an embryo. It's just another word for embryo development. And yeah, it's unfertilized it in the sense that it was created using cloning, not fertilization. So you could have like Dolly, the sheep was an unfertilized sheep in that way. Right. I mean, that's uh, unfertilized implies something incomplete, but it's, it's, it's just, it's just a reference to, right. It was an obfuscation <laughs> to yeah, say the least. Exactly. To say I, the least. I don't want to focus too much at all on euthanasia. Cause I do that a lot. Um, but you, we will notice that, once it's legalized, it begins to expand, sometimes more slowly, sometimes at a greater uh, um, pace. Germany has actually, uh, the highest court there, created an absolute right to commit suicide, an absolute right to be assisted in suicide for any reason that the person who wants to die uh, desires. That's death on demand. Do you think that um, that really is the ultimate destination of the euthanasia movement, whether advocates want it or not? Well, there's no, certainly no coherent internal limiting principle. If, if the good that you are, I mean, people, as you well know, people argue for euthanasia pursuant to the good of autonomy or to the good of this kind of sense of compassion that people whose lives fall below a certain threshold, the, the compassionate thing to do is to end their life. And so, whereas, you know, politically, they always begin with the, the image of the, the free and, 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 and the, the free and, and able-bodied person choosing to end his or her life, right? The, uh, as opposed to the context of those people who can't ask to have their lives ended or those people uh, who perhaps don't understand their own best interests. So we divide the world up when I teach my students about this between voluntary euthanasia where a person has made a request and that's not politically where we always start. But that moves pretty quickly to non-voluntary euthanasia because the good of compassion should be extended equally to children. Right, children can't don't have the autonomy to ask what they want. But you have these poor children with spina bifida, so we have to develop the Groningen Protocol in the Netherlands, so we can allow these children to die who are not terminally ill, by the way. And in fact, the fact that they're not terminally ill was became an argument in favor of euthanizing them because they're the measure of their suffering would be extended throughout their entire life, as opposed to a person who only has six months to live, which, by the way, is almost impossible to predict. So you move to the non-voluntary, a person who can't to, who who can't ask to the involuntary. And then, of course, Herbert Hendon and others point to this example of this nun in the Netherlands who said, I don't want to be euthanized. But she was euthanized because the doctor said she wasn't in her right mind. She was relying on uh, outmoded religious principles to understand her human situation. And I did her a favor, acted in her best interest. So that's the, the slope from from voluntary to non-voluntary to involuntary is a very real one. And we're protected in the United States so far by a Supreme Court that is not going to do what Germany did and not going to recognize a substantive due process right to, to end your own life or to be assisted in dying. Um, uh, we, we saw that in Glucksburg and in, 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 in Quill in the, in the late 90s, and the Supreme Court has only gotten better, I think, in terms of thinking clearly about how to analyze those questions. 
And we're fortunate in this country to have the American Medical Association still on the side of opposition to, uh, to euthanasia and assisted suicide. In every country that I've seen that has moved in this direction, the first step in the process is the, is the major medical professional society either, either supporting assisted suicide or declaring neutrality. And that's what happened in California, too. You have the California Medical Association declare neutrality. Uh, and then, of course, it passes. Whereas in Massachusetts in 2012, when there was a referendum, the same electorate that reelected President Obama and Elizabeth Warren rejected assisted suicide in 2012 because they saw where it would lead um, uh, uh, because the Massachusetts Medical Society stood firm against it. Yeah, this idea of neutrality is an abdication of moral responsibility and a cowardice, in my opinion. Um, I want to ask you this. Do you think there is too much emphasis on the law and not enough on helping people decide what values they should follow regardless of the law? I think those two things are very deeply connected. I, I, think, I think we should have both and approach. The law is always normative. The law is normative top to bottom. Laws are basically, you know, to put it in the modern parlance, I don't like this expression, but the law is sort of value judgments infused with either the coercive power of the state or the incentive creation, creating power of the state. The state is making a judgment, and we usually do this through the democratic process, except for abortion where the Supreme Court did it on its own, uh, where we come to a view about what goods we want to pursue, what harms we want to avoid, and then we codify that in a statute or a regulation or, or, or what have you. Um, and, and so people not only uh, understand what a given community cares about as a moral matter, as a matter of justice, by studying the law, the law reflects what people uh, uh, believe, but also for better or worse, sometimes for worse, the law pedagogically shapes people's understanding of right and wrong, of justice and injustice. So I think the law has an essential role to play in educating the public about how to think about these matters. But of course, we have to do the hard work of cultural formation and convincing people in their own decisions what's right and what's wrong. So I think we have to do both. Yeah, I, I quite agree with you. Um, we, As we've discussed abortion and assisted suicide and some of these other issues that are, are so um, contentious, and, and really how one falls on, on the spectrum of, of, of their beliefs about these issues kind of d is determined by what they think about what you call the anthropology of individualism versus the anthropology of embodiment. And those are almost um, incompatible uh, value systems. But yet we're a huge society. We, we live in, in a geographic area. How do we manage to live together if we have such divergent views? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And in the book, I, I, I make the point that expressive individualism does, in fact, capture something true about who we are. We are free. We are individuals in, in, in an important respect. But at the same time, it's only a partial truth about who we are. And if we think about our shared experience, you don't have to be Catholic or Protestant or Orthodox or Jewish or an atheist to think about your own experience and to realize that the shape of your life is in many ways determined by our dependence, mutual vulnerability, and natural limits, which are all features of our embodiment. And if you think further about that, what does that mean for what we should do and what we owe to each other? I think it situates us in a, per a particular kind of relationship, as I said, of giving and receiving uh, that should animate and become the metric for how well we're doing, both in the law and even amongst ourselves. Um, but how do you, I mean, the, the, this is the big question, a pluralistic society where, where you know, Cal in a country that includes California and Indiana, where I live, uh, how, do you, how do you govern? And uh, I think we have to, I think we have to be honest with each other. I think we have to have, you know, be, but I think 
the mo- importantly, in, insofar as one can be, I think we have to strive to be genuine friends with one another, including those with whom we strongly disagree. Now, that's not a, a macro solution. You can't make people friends with each other on a macro level. But at the, but the truth is, you know, the thing that you and I can do uh, is, to, is to respond and react to the person that's right in front of us. And assume uh, that that person has as much goodwill as we think we do. Exactly right. Humility. Well, it's been very interesting, Carter. I really appreciate it. What's next on your agenda? I continue to uh, to teach my students and uh, the DeNicola Center for Ethics and Culture, where I serve as the director. Uh, we're working on a wide variety of projects involving trying to cultivate uh, uh, the resources of Notre Dame to respond to a post-Roe world, which we hope will come about this summer. Uh, we call it the Women and Children First Initiative, uh, imagining a post-Roe world, mobilizing our resources to provide for not just unborn children and their protection, but also for mothers and families as well. Uh, in my own research, I'm working on a, a, another book. This one is about uh, a lot of what we've been talking about today, the question not of what it means to be human, but who counts as one of us and how do we decide taking up the hard questions of synthetic embryos, animal human chima- uh, chimeras and hybrids, and then finally uh, cerebral organoids. Well, that, that should be very interesting. And when it comes out, we'll have you back. Thank you so much, Wesley. Thanks for everything you do. And thank you, Carter. Uh, I appreciate it very much. Thanks for listening to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. Discover all the good work of the Center on Human Exceptionalism by visiting discovery.org human. We can only do this work speaking on behalf of human life, human thriving, and our exceptional place in this world and our cosmos with your support. We invite you to make a one-time gift today and to consider starting a monthly gift to support the Center on Human Exceptionalism and this show. Wherever you're listening to Humanize, please take a moment to rate and review the show. You matter. Your actions matter. Be bold, be exceptional, and be back soon.